So if I were going to give this sermon a title, the title would be The Necessity of Knowing and Going. That's the title. Hopefully by the end of our time, we'll be able to understand and agree on that. And so in order to help us get there, in order to get us moving down the road, there's a confession that I need to make. Just something I need to get off my chest. And since moving to Colorado about a year and a half ago, whenever anybody has asked me where I'm from, I've always told them that I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. And the truth is I'm not actually from Birmingham. I am from a suburb of Birmingham called Hoover, Alabama. So it's just like someone who says they're from Denver when really they're from Littleton. Just easier, clearer that way, more recognizable. But really, Hoover and Birmingham, they have a very tenuous relationship. There's a lot of, of history, a lot of rough history there. You see, the city of Hoover was named after a man named William H. Hoover. And there's just no other way to say it other than to say that William Hoover was a blatant racist. He wasn't the kind of racist that you see sometimes in 2019 that kind of tried to hide it. He was just, here I am. He said he wanted to remove all non-white people from America. He produced neo-Nazi literature and radio broadcasts. When an integrated school opened up in Birmingham, he opened his own segregated school. Like, just kind of the worst kind of person. And that's who my hometown is named after. And so then just 10 miles away is Birmingham and William Hoover was doing all those things uh, during the civil rights movement. And so Birmingham obviously played a huge role in the civil rights movement. Maybe you've heard of the 16th Street bombing where members of the KKK placed a bomb in the basement of a church and one Sunday morning it went off and killed four little girls. Stuff like that happened enough that Birmingham eventually earned the name Bombingham. Dr. Martin Luther King referred to Birmingham as the most segregated city in America. He wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. So, so Hoover and Birmingham, it, it's just, it's very divided. There, there is literally a mountain that divides Birmingham and Hoover. So there's a, there's a phrase there that everybody knows. It's called over the mountain. That means you're from the suburbs. You're from over the mountain. You went to an over the mountain school. Like literally the kind of basketball I was taught was over the mountain basketball where you get in a stance and you play defense and you practice the fundamentals. Like everything is characterized and defined by this mountain that divides Hoover and Birmingham. And Birmingham and Hoover, that's the, the closest that I think I've ever gotten to experiencing the level the levels of division and tension and hatred that is going on in our text for this morning. Today we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and Acts is the book where the grace of God, the love of God, the redemptive plan of God goes global. And so this is why Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And, and just because we're so far removed in space and time from first century Israel, I don't know if we can really feel the weight of the division and hatred that was shared between the Jews and the Gentiles of this time. A very common prayer for a Jewish man would have been, God, thank you that I'm not a woman, and thank you that I'm not a Gentile. They absolutely hated each other. They would not speak with one another. They would not eat with one another. With one another. They used racial slurs against one another all the time. 
But what we're going to see in this passage is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. Ethnicity, nationality, skin color, language, cultural heritage, family lineage, none of it should be a barrier of the gospel. All right, so that, that's going to be our big idea. That, that is our big idea, where we're going to end up. And it's such a big and important and all-encompassing idea that Luke, the author of Acts, actually includes this story twice. He told it one time in chapter 10 in more of a long-form, narrative, more detailed style. And then he told it again in chapter 11, what we read today, in more of a concise summary form. And so just to save time, we just read chapter 11, but I'm going to be preaching more out of chapter 10. And I would really encourage you to go back at some point this week and read through chapter 10 just to see all of the details and all of the nuances. And just because chapter 10 is so long and broad and sweeping and because there are multiple layers going on, just so that we don't get lost in, in the bigness and think, okay, where, I don't know where I am. This sermon might be a little more teachy than preachy. It's going to be a lot of, you know, look at this verse and see how these, this word relates to this word and see some of the implications of that. So just keep your Bible open. We are going to be looking at it a lot. This is one of those times where God calls us to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. So towards that end, just let me pray that the Lord would bless our time in his word. Lord, thank you for the gift that your word is to us. Thank you for its truth and for revealing yourself in it. We ask that by your spirit, you would move our hearts and move our minds. Would you show us Jesus from these words? Make him big in our lives. Make him bigger than he has ever been before to us. Pray these things in his name. Amen. So this is the story of the gospel going to all of the Gentiles. But before it goes to all the Gentiles, we are going to see it go to one Gentile. And that one Gentile who it's going to go to, his name is Cornelius. And so when we read through chapter 11, you know, the man that Peter kept referring to, when he said, we entered the man's house, when the man summoned me that I should go to him, that man is Cornelius. And in the first two verses of chapter 10, we actually learn a lot about Cornelius. Would you read them with me? Chapter 10 starts out, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Okay, so we know that Cornelius was a centurion, the captain or, you know, commander in the Roman army. He was a military man, and he was stationed in Caesarea, so which is a coastal town in northern Israel. So you have Cornelius the Gentile stationed in Israel. And just being in Israel, he uh, no doubt would have heard of Israel's God. He would have been surrounded by the, the worship of Yahweh. And we know that he actually eventually became a God-fearer. Verse 2 says that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. So Cornelius feared God, he respected God, he admired God. To some degree, he even believed and followed God. He gave alms generously to the poor, he prayed continually. Cornelius was a through and through worshiper. 
His worship was sincere, it was faithful, it was sacrificial, and it was genuine. But what I want to know is whether or not Cornelius was a true believer before Peter came and preached the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. Cornelius is described as a God-fearer, and Peter will eventually come and preach to him. So what I want to know is whether Cornelius was a true Junian believer before Peter preached to him. Was he saved? And the reason that this is such a big question is because some people have interpreted verses 34 and 35 of chapter 10. They have interpreted those verses to mean that Cornelius was a Junian believer of the gospel before he heard the gospel. So verses 34 and 35 say, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Okay, so do you see the connection between the description of Cornelius in verse 2? He is a devout man who fears God, and he does good and acceptable things. He gives alms to the poor and he prays continually. Do you see that connection between his description and what is con- considered being acceptable to God in verses 34 and 35? So some have taken that connection to mean that if someone is sincere and genuine in their belief in God, that they can be a true believer, they can be a true Christian. So so we could carry this to a further conclusion and believe that many of the unreached people groups of the world can be accepted by God and saved without ever hearing or believing in Jesus. So how we answer the question, was Cornelius a true believer? And how we interpret verses 34 and 35 are going to have a massive impact on how we view world missions particularly among the unreached people groups of the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. So, was Cornelius a believer? I think we can study chapter 10 and 11, and and I see four reasons to lead me to think that no, he was not. Just for the sake of time, we're only going to look at two. So the first one, I think this is the clearest and the strongest argument for saying that Cornelius was not a believer before Peter preached to him. It's in chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. Chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And here's the thing. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. Okay, so there's no big reveal. There's no hidden insight or nuance that I want us to see. All that I want us to see is a point about grammar. Notice that the angel did not say, Cornelius, you are saved already, and Peter is coming to inform you of your salvation, which is what some people believe evangelism and missions is. No, the verb is in the future tense. The angel is saying, you will be saved. You are not saved right now, but you will be. So kids, let me speak to you right now. Pay attention in your English lit classes. Learn your grammar. It is going to help you read and study your Bible, and I can think of nothing more important than that. So kids, learn your grammar. 
But also in verse 14, notice the connection between salvation and the message. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. Salvation has to be through the message, the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That message proclaimed, heard, understood, and believed. That is how someone receives salvation. So that's the first reason why I don't think Cornelius was a believer. Second one is in chapter 10, verse 43, and this is the conclusion of Peter's sermon to Cornelius. He says, to him, speaking of Jesus, to Jesus, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's just another one of the times where I just want us to see the connection between the forgiveness of sins and believing. More specifically, more specifically, believing in the name of Jesus. So forgiveness is only through belief, but belief in what? Belief in who? Belief in the name, believing in Jesus. This is what Peter preached back in Acts 4 when he said that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So just note, see the exclusivity that Peter is speaking with here. He's saying that you cannot believe in an unspecified God, no matter how genuine or how sincere it is. You cannot just confess that God exists and believe in him and expect for your sins to be forgiven. This is why in Acts chapter 3, you remember what Peter commanded the Jews to do? He said to Jews who would have been considered perfectly acceptable, faithful, orthodox, Old Testament Jews, he said, you need to repent. Yes, you are following the Lord, you are following him sincerely, but you have acted in ignorance toward Jesus. You have ignored and rejected Jesus, and therefore you need to repent. So we must call on the name of Jesus exclusively and specifically. So I think we can see that while Cornelius feared God and even obeyed God to some degree, he did not know God. He was a religious man, but he was not a regenerate man, at least not until he heard of Jesus. So maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, all right, Matthew, you seem really passionate about this. We've spent a lot of time and energy making the point that, yeah, Cornelius needed to hear the gospel in order to believe. Why is this such a big deal? Why go to such, uh, such lengths just to split minute theological hairs about the means and the moment by which Cornelius became a believer? Here's why. Because what we do with the Corneliuses of the world will determine the urgency with which we pursue world missions. I'm going to say that again. What we do with the Corneliuses of the world will determine the urgency with which we pursue world missions. A more clear or pointed way to say it would be to ask the question, what about the person who, like Cornelius, is sincere and genuine in their belief in God, but they never hear the name of Jesus? Or even a more extreme example, what about the person who, like Cornelius, is sincere and genuine in their belief in God, but they never even get the chance or the opportunity 
to hear of Jesus. Maybe they're just born in the middle of the Amazon jungle. They've never met a single Christian, never single, never uh, seen a Bible, have never heard the name of Jesus, but they still did the best that they could. They, they sensed that a God existed. They were kind of haunted by a sense of transcendence and divinity. So they did their best and they worshiped the sun. Or they worshiped the, the spirit of the earth. Or they, or they, they worshiped the, the unnamed God. They didn't know his name, but they worshiped him truly. What happens to the Corneliuses of the world? I think it's really fitting that right after the book of Acts comes the book of Romans. So if you would, go ahead and turn over to Romans 1 with me. And so the book of Acts is about seeing the grace and love and redemptive plan of God uh, move to the ends of the earth. And in the first chapter of Romans, Paul addresses this question. If the gospel is going to the ends of the earth, what about those who never hear? What about those who never hear the name of Jesus? And he starts his, his argument for answering this question in verse 19. Chapter 1, Paul says, what, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Simply meaning that God has revealed himself. He has revealed who he is to us and he has made it plain. Okay, well, how does he reveal himself to us? Verse 20, we learn that it is through creation. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what this is saying is that all of creation, from forests to oceans to mountains to the uh, infinite expanse of space to the planetary motions to the artistry and sophistication of the human eye to the rainbows to the ecosystems, all of it, with one loud and unifying voice is saying, yes, we are awesome, we are amazing, now look at our creator. He has revealed himself in us. His glory is evident in us. Now worship him. So God's character and nature are clearly shown in creation. And verse 20 even goes so far to say that we have clearly perceived it. So we have all looked at creation and gotten the sense that there has to be an artist behind this creation. It is clear and we have perceived it. Therefore, no one can say, I didn't get a chance to know God. He has revealed himself and we have perceived it. So we are without excuse. And then verse 21 tells us what we do in response to God's revelation in creation. Verse 21 says that for although they knew God, they saw, they perceived, they understood, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for a lie. I think verse 25 sums up perfectly what we do with the information God has revealed to us. It says, they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We commit idolatry. We worship the creature rather than the creator. So what this is saying is that all people, 
everywhere from all time periods do recognize and should admit that God is holy and eternal and powerful and just and that they are sinful and condemned in their standing before him. That, that is what we should do. But in reality, what we do is what verse 18 says. It says we suppress that truth. We reject it. We deny it. Verse 21, although we knew God, we do not honor God or give thanks to him. Our broken hearts are sinful and choose to worship the creature rather than the creator. So I was listening to a sermon by David Platt one time, and he was preaching on this passage from Romans, and he, he answered the question this way. The question is, you know, what about the innocent person who's never heard of Jesus? What happens to the innocent person? That's how the question is most commonly phrased. What about the innocent person? And he said, and I agree with him with full authority of scripture and with a clear conscience that yes, the innocent person who has never heard the gospel does go to heaven. Thing is, that innocent person does not exist. Okay, is that clear? That innocent person does not exist. Although God in his glory is clearly revealed in creation, no one ever has ever looked at creation and said, you know what? Based on what I see, this leads me to believe that there is a creator, that he is holy, just, eternal, omnipotent, righteous, and wise, and that I stand condemned before him. My only hope is for God himself to pay the penalty for my sin, and he has done that through the personal work of Jesus Christ, and I must put my faith in him and repent of my sins. No one has ever looked at creation and had that response. If they did, it would be right here in Colorado. Look at those mountains. God does not show off more anywhere than in those mountains. If you could come to saving faith through creation, Colorado would be the most Christian state in America. It does not happen. Instead, what happens is what Paul writes in Romans 3. It says, no one is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There is no fear of God in anyone. Maybe another way to think about it would be that this is also from David Platt. I'm just copying and pasting here. Um, say you meet an international student. Say they're from China. You meet them and you ask them, have you ever heard of Jesus? I say, no, Who, who's that? If you believed that they could be considered acceptable and right before God simply because they had never heard the name of Jesus, what would be the absolute worst thing that you could do for them? It would be to share the gospel. If they were in simply because they have never heard, what you would say to them would be good. If you ever hear someone tell you the name of Jesus, or if you ever even hear a name starting with J, just plug your ears, start saying la, 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 and run away as fast as you can. <laughs> Do you hear how backwards that sounds? Do you hear how contrary to the New Testament that is? I mean, those unreached people groups were doing fine before these Great Commission people got there. I, I can't say it any more clearly than how Paul says it in Romans 10. Just, just listen to the logic here. It's an unbreakable chain. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How are they to call on him of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear unless someone is preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This gospel has to be proclaimed and heard in order to be believed. There is no other way. So are we beginning to see that how we view the Corneliuses of the world will determine our urgency in world missions, particularly among the unreached people groups of the world. Cornelius was the most sincere and genuine worshiper that you will ever meet. And if Cornelius can be saved apart from hearing Jesus, then our intensity in pursuing missions is going to decrease. It is going to get lax. If you think someone can come to Jesus apart from missions, then missions is going to die. There is a grand canyon of difference between saying, yeah, we should go, but they still have a chance, therefore I don't have to go. There's a grand canyon of difference between saying that and saying they have absolutely no chance and therefore we must go. Hence the title of this sermon, The Necessity of Knowing and Going. They must know the name of Jesus in order to receive salvation. Therefore, we must go carrying the name of Jesus. Now, we just spent a lot of time and a lot of energy making the point that you must know and believe and call on the name of Jesus in order to receive salvation. And we started out by highlighting the racial and cultural divisions that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. We said that the big idea is that the gospel is no respecter of persons. The gospel is for everyone. Okay, so let's try and connect these things. How does the necessity of knowing and calling on the name of Jesus relate to the gospel crossing ethnic, national, and cultural barriers? I'll say it this way. I think that the belief in the absolute necessity of knowing the name of Jesus in order to receive salvation is the theological fuel and fire that we must maintain if we are going to pursue the hard work of seeing the gospel cross ethnic, national, and cultural barriers. Because here's the thing. As sinful, broken humans, just part of our natural condition is we love to seek out people who are just like us. There is something about us that we seek sameness. You are never more comfortable than when you are with people who look like you, talk like you, sound like you, eat the same things you do, believe all the same things you do, have all the cultural heritage and tradition that you do. And when that sameness is broken and when certain forms of diversity are put into our lives, there's just something in our flesh that rises up against that. So I was in Europe over the last few weeks, mostly in Italy, also in uh, France and Germany, and for the most part, it was great. It's beautiful. People were welcoming and, and hospitable and very kind. But I do have to admit, there were some things that I did not like. I do not like eating dinner at 10 p.m. I do not like paying two euros for a single ice cube. I do not like seeing men walk around in speedos. And I do not like having those men who are wearing Speedos come up and kiss me on the cheek. I am not here for it. No. I don't want it. Just in my flesh, these cultural distinctives rubbed me the wrong way. And in my darkest moments, I thought to myself, I, 
I just don't like these people. I want to go home. I want to preserve my sameness. I want to be around people like me. And it's not just us. We see this all the time with biblical characters. You can go ahead and turn back to Acts 10 with me, but uh, we see this a lot in Peter. I didn't know this until I started studying this week, but there are actually a lot of really strong biblical connections between Peter and Jonah. So we actually studied Jonah right before we started Acts, and if you'll remember, Jonah was the worst missionary in the history of the world. Calling him a missionary would be generous. He was an anti-missionary. At best, he was a nationalist. At worst, he was a racist. He was horrible. There are a lot of similarities between Jonah and Peter. Jonah went to Joppa before going off in the boat and getting eaten by the fish. Where is Peter in this text? He's in Joppa. Jonah did not want to see the mercy and love of God extended beyond the borders of Israel. Peter did not want to eat or to associate or to stay in the home of anybody who was not an Israelite. I think there's a reason in Matthew 16 when Peter confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ, there's a reason that Jesus responds and says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Peter, you've got some Jonah in you. There are some sinful, fleshly, racist tendencies in you. And I have some of those sins too. When I was in Europe, there was a part of me that said, can we just have like the American church and the French church and the German church and we'll all pursue Jesus, but we don't have to do it together. Then we just don't have to do the messy work of seeing the gospel cross cultures. We don't have to see the gospel be the actual thing that unites us instead of our cultural heritage. But what did Jesus say to Peter when Peter tried to maintain this cultural divide between Jew and Gentile? We know that Peter saw something like a sheet falling down over heaven, from heaven covering the whole earth, and interspersed throughout that sheet were all kinds of animals, beasts of prey, reptiles and birds, all, all the foods that a good old boy like Peter never would have eaten. Jesus said, I have declared these things clean. And what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. And in chapter 10, verse 28, notice how Peter applies this new commandment from Jesus. Verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See that jump that Peter made? Jesus said, I have declared these foods clean. Don't call it common or unclean. So Peter interpreted and applied that in a way that said, I shall not call any person common or unclean. Meaning that race, ethnicity, culture, language, none of these things, no matter how different they might be from what we know, and no matter how much we might not like those differences, none of those things should keep us from wanting to see people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue come to know Jesus. Now this was not an easy jump for Peter to make. Jesus had to tell him three times. Peter was really, really thick-headed. If, you, if you'll notice, like, there's, all, there's some kind of connection between Jesus and Peter and the number three. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus restored Peter three times, saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus had to tell Peter three times, what I have made clean, do not call common. 
So it took Peter a while for that sinful part of his flesh to die, but he eventually understood that in Christ, worldly distinctions about who is deserving to receive the love of God are thrown out the window. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The gospel is for everyone. So so just to, to piece this all together, I pray that as a church, we would be burdened for the billions of people who do not know the name of Jesus. I pray that we would desire to see people from every nation, every language, every tribe, and every tongue praising Jesus. I pray that we would lay down our lives and give everything, our time, our money, our jobs, our security, our comforts, our family, lay it all down for the sake of the name of Jesus being made known and praised all around the world. Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, our standing marching orders are to go. Just, Just feel the glory of Jesus and the need for people to have Jesus around the world and be burdened by it. We, we want to help you and to equip you to go to the mission field as much as we can. Talk to Mark and Jen and their family. They spent 15 years overseas. Talk to Justin and Julie and their family. They just came back from Portugal. We have so many families in our church who have spent time overseas trying to make the name of Jesus made known. But do away with the cultural distinctives that get in the way. Love Jesus so much that you will not be able to sit still until someone from every nation, every language, every tribe, and every tongue is singing Jesus' praises. Towards that end, let me pray for us. Jesus, you are worthy of everything that we have. You are glorious and holy and righteous and wise and wonderful and beautiful and you have redeemed us and called us to yourself. Lord, would you burden us? Would you give us a holy burden for those who do not know your name? Would you call us and equip us to take your gospel to those who have never heard? Would you be so beautiful to us that we do away with every other cultural and worldly distinction. Would you be our unifier? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.